0: Abba, Jehovah, Lord. As I have testified to this testimony in my life, I I pray that it has resonated with these, my brothers and sisters in this room. The paradox of our faith, that the pain, the silence, the weakness, the challenge, the difficulty, all the things that cause us to not stand as firmly within our faith that you would address that this day, that there would be the profound magisterial nature of your word, as Rodney has prepared it to bring to us, uh, that it would center into our hearts. So I pray you would bless him and bless us as we magnify your word. We thank you for this opportunity to investigate and marinate in the book of Job, And uh, how amazing it is. You be glorified now through this message and in our response to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Annis Horribles. Now often do you hear a message begin in Latin. These words were uttered by Queen Elizabeth II. The occasion was the London Guild Hall in London, England, the United Kingdom. It was the 40th anniversary of her accession to the throne. She had gathered with the assembled, and she did something very uncharacteristic for her. She pulled back the veil for just a moment to her own heart and her own thoughts. And as she looked out at the people, she said, horrible year. Now, if you're old enough, you may remember some of the happenings in 1992 over across the pond. It was a year of scandal within the royal family. The queen's children's marriages were disintegrating. It was fodder for the tabloids, and every day it seemed like there was another embarrassment. Criticism of the monarchy and the royal family, and were they even relevant in a modern British society, were coming down upon the queen. She had been herself. She had been stoic. She had remained quiet. But on this night of all nights, the celebration of her reign, she said, Anna's horribless. It's been a horrible year. Just four days prior, her beloved Windsor Castle had gone up in flames. There was all the the video image, and you may have seen some of the still photographs of the queen herself as she helped to remove treasures out of the castle. And she stood before the assembled in a raspy voice, and she let them know what was going on in her heart. You know, you may relate to the queen. You may relate to her. You may have everything around you constructed in such a way that there's a facade that no one would ever know that there's any need, any issue, any hurt in your life. But if you would do for just a moment as the queen and you just pull that veil back a little bit, we might discover that there are unanswered questions. There are hurts. There are difficulties. You know, that's been the essence of this series in Job, our pastor has taken us through. To help us understand, what do we do in the darkness? Today we're talking about the very silence of God. How do we respond to God when God appears to have shut the doors of heaven? That there is no word. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Job chapter 30. We're going to be beginning in just a moment in verse 16. Job is this gentleman, as we've discovered. It's an ancient book. He is an ancient gentleman. It goes back well beyond a millennia before Christ. And he is at the very top of his society, of his culture. He is identified as having great lands and wealth and possessions. This is a man that is admired and esteemed, and yet we've seen over the last weeks that in his life there all of a sudden became this unknown, unforeseen series of tragic circumstances that took it all away. We've even discovered not only did he lose family and possessions, not only did he lose the esteem of those people that were around him, he lost his health. And as I've thought about this over these last weeks, I've thought when Job wrote this, he's speaking with parched lips, his skin hangs from his body, he is racked with pain by his own word, and he has a question for God. Beginning verse 16, and now my soul is poured out within me, days of affliction have taken hold of me, the night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is defigured, and it binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you do not look at me. You have turned cruel to me. and the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, and you make me ride upon it. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. I want you to look at verse 20. In the midst of his pain and his sorrow and all that's about him, he has even said, God, you have just cast me into the muck, into the mire, into the mud. He looks in verse 20 and he says, and I cry out to you for help, but you don't answer me. And I stand and you only look at me. Job is in silence, and what's interesting is he's not in total silence. He is surrounded by those who have come ostensibly to comfort him, and they have in quiet mourned with him, but all of a sudden, they've begun to speak, and their advice becomes ridicule and taunts and insults, and so with the noise that surrounds him, he finds the very silence of God. C.S. Lewis identified with this, writing about his own grief, In A Grief Observed, he says this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting of symptoms. When you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But you go to him when your need is desperate and when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. The silence of God. I don't know if you've ever experienced this emotion. I believe today some, if not many of us have. If you live long enough, you will. As I thought about this message, I I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to have someone to come talk about their journey in grief, their journey through pain in the silence of God And I thought about one of our sweet long-term members, Verdell Kreischer. Many of you know Verdell and know her story, but many of you and you may you may not have heard this. And I've asked Verdell if she would to come and just share a little bit of her journey. Thank you, Verdell. I
2: needed him. Many years ago now, I was sitting um, on a Sunday morning in June, a beautiful Sunday morning in June, in the balcony. My daughter was sitting next to me, and uh, my others, my two sons were elsewhere in this sanctuary. My minister husband and three very close friends would be flying home that afternoon from a men's retreat in Montana that they had been on together. Um, and you know, I was sitting in this sanctuary and I was really feeling a great deal of contentment. Um, I had two grandchildren at this point. I was 46 years old. My children were doing well. Uh, We were all healthy. There just were no storm clouds on my horizon. But then, an airplane didn't come home that afternoon. And by three o'clock that afternoon, I was pacing my backyard and I was begging, please God, please don't tell me that my greatest fear has come true. Because I think the greatest fear for all of us is that we would lose a spouse or a child or someone in our lives that that helped make our lives make sense and give it a depth of its meaning. The plane was not found for three days, and this church was very much a part of the drama that goes on with such a, a public event. And on the day that we got the message that there were no survivors, my life suddenly and irrevocably changed. Two days after that message, there was a memorial service here in this sanctuary uh, with overflow, attendance, in two other churches in the city. And the day after that, which happened to be July the 4th that year, there was a funeral three hours west of here in the little town where we both grew up. And driving back to Dallas after that service, and all of my little family was in the car together, and just before I fell asleep, I remember a feeling that I was standing at the entrance to a deep, dark tunnel, and I didn't want to go in. And in my almost asleep state, I kept feeling behind me, and there was nothing there, as if there was nothing to go back to. And I, and I realized that I had no choice. I had to go in that tunnel. And I didn't know if I'd come out the other side, but I didn't really want to at that point. Because I knew the pain I was feeling when I could hardly breathe as it is would only be worse as the time went on. So in the days and the weeks and the months and even years to come, everything I had ever believed, everything I had ever been taught, everything I thought I knew was severely tested. And as time went further on and reality and emptiness and what I called relentless pain set in, so did silence and so did desperation. And Then one day, my two college-age kids were home and they wandered into the kitchen where I was looking for something to eat. And I don't remember saying this, but I must have said, I don't know why I got up this morning. Now remember, I got up every morning in a fog anyway. Um, Later that day, some of the boys from the church here, the youth group here, had come over to the house, and they were leaving to go somewhere. Maybe I didn't have anything for them to eat. I don't know. But my fog had lifted enough by then that I walked outside with them. And as they walked toward the car, Stephen, my younger son, came back up to me and put his arms around me, and he whispered, Mom, I have a reason for you to get up in the morning. And I knew that was all three of my children. I knew they were saying, Mom, we love you. Mom, we need you. Mom, we can do this together. And so at that moment, standing on that sidewalk, I can tell you what the cracks were look like. I said, God, whatever you have to do, however much it hurts and however long it takes, please get me to the place that I do more than just survive." That i put my arms out i embrace life again because i thought i owed it not only to myself but i owed it to my children sitting in the balcony up there at this moment um, i owed it to them to test and prove what we had been teaching them to see if it would sustain the darkness and on this journey i needed job because i had been asking god a lot of questions And reading Job made it safe for me to ask any question that came to my mind, because he didn't seem to mince words a lot. I could no longer take for granted that everything I believed, just because it was my upbringing, uh, was going to sustain me now. And and I was saying, I believe. Please, God, help my unbelief. And so no question was too small, and no question was too sacred. I asked why. Why CREF? Why not me? He is the one who could help everyone else make sense of this senseless tragedy. Why these four men? Why now? They were making such a difference in their worlds. And I ask, is there life after death? Is there life after me without Kref? Is there a me without him? And then the questions kind of changed. God, are you truly sovereign? Do you ordain all that happens to us? Do you plan an airplane accident before the beginning of the world? Or do accidents just happen? Does it really matter what I believe either way? How do I reconcile your love with my pain? And what about the scriptures that promise watchful care, that seem to say, if you trust and obey, all will be well. And now my children were fatherless and I was the widow. And there was a promise about that too. And prayer. I prayed. Four wives and mothers were praying for an airplane with our husbands and the fathers of our children to come home safely. So what about prayer? And I thought of that the day I put my daughter in the car to drive back to college and there was ice and snow on the ground in Abilene where she was going. And these were no longer theological questions. They were real life questions. Just as they were real life questions for Job. And then one day as I was wrestling once again, excuse me, as I was wrestling once again with these questions, um, I began to realize that I was asking of an infinite God, answers my finite mind couldn't understand where he could give them. So I was no longer looking for answers. I was looking for a God bigger than all my questions. And my journey changed. Because I understood what Job said when he said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And now in my aging life, where things seem to be changing faster than I can adjust to them, I cling every day to something that minister husband of mine said long before I lost him when he said, you can trust in the character of God beyond what you can understand. And I want to leave you with something that Henry Nowen said. Please listen carefully to the last words of this. He said, I believe deeply that our few years on this earth are part of a much bigger event that stretches out far beyond the boundaries of our birth and life. I think of it as a mission into time, a mission that is very exhilarating and even exciting, mostly because the one who sent me on the mission is waiting for me to come home and tell him the story of what I have learned.
1: Thank you, Verdell, for ministering to us today. You know, in that last statement that she read from Henry Nowen, the story of what we've learned. Well, what can we learn in periods of silence? What is it that God might have for us? If you take notes, I do, so I hope that you do. The first point is this. Trust in what you know. Trust in what you know. You heard that in Verdell's message. Psalm 103 is one of my favorite psalms. It's a psalm ascribed to David, and in this psalm, it appears it's written towards the end of his life, David begins to talk about the benefits. He talks about the character of God. And David is a man who would have known Job, he would have known the story, he would have known the message, and he would have identified. David also had been at times at the very heights And through circumstances that were not of his own making, at the very lows, there were times where he had despaired of life, and then there were times by his own volitional choice, he had put himself in a place of silence and sin. But he writes this for us Praise the Lord, O my soul, and my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your sin and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? He goes on to say, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love is for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassions on his children, so the Lord has compassions on those who fear him, on those who love him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. You know, I love what David says there. He reminds us of the great love of God. And in times of silence, we need to be reminded of the love of God as evidenced through Jesus Christ the great love of God. He reminds us that God has taken us our sins, and he's taken them as far as the east is from the west. And my understanding of that is that's an infinite distance. East never meets west. And God has taken our sins, he's removed them from us, and he knows that we are but people. Men and women, he knows that we're dust. He knows us. He knows the love of God. And rather than concentrating on circumstances, there are those times in life where we need to concentrate on the character of God, that which we know. And you know, my friends, we have something Job didn't have. We have the Bible. We have the Bible. We have the very promises of God. And as I was thinking about this message today, I opened my Bible, and I noticed places that I had circled. And I don't know about you, I'll write in my Bible, and I will circle things that are meaningful to me or promises that I see. And I found promises all across the Bible that I had circled, some that I dated. I don't know why, but I had dated them. On that day, it meant something to me. And I was able to see, and it was one of those moments for me, even preparing such a heavy message of just great joy, as I recollected all the love that is mine in Jesus Christ. So let me just go over a few of these with you. If you were ever in a church as a child, you learned John 3.16. We were led by boys and girls in worship today. They know that Jesus came, that they are loved. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that we are forgiven, that he is right and just. He will forgive us our sins. In Romans 5.8, we understand that we have peace with God through Christ. In Colossians 3.12, we are told that we are the beloved of God. You are the beloved of God. Psalm 27.1, there's light and there's direction. In Psalm 119.105, we're reminded that the Bible gives us light for that next step. When all seems dark, God by His Spirit, God through His Word, will give us enough light. And sometimes you just need enough light for the next step. That's what I heard in Verdell today. Just enough light for the next step. We understand in Philippians 4 that when we are anxious, that God is with me. We're not to be anxious. He's with us. In Philippians 4.19, he will meet our needs through who? Through Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, he talks about the need for fellowship. You know, this morning we've gathered in the sanctuary and we have engaged our heart in worship. You have sung. I loved a few moments ago the anthem and I loved the hymn, Tis So Sweet, to trust in Jesus. And there are those days in life, that's all that we have is our trust in Jesus. But we're reminded also in Colossians 3 that we're called into community. And if you're not part of a connect group, you're missing one of the beauties, one of the blessings of Park Cities. It's where in a church you're known. In a sanctuary, we have a 30 second stand up and greet. We're not known, we're anonymous. But in a connect group, we are loved. We belong. It's where ministry takes place. Oftentimes, tell people who are thinking about coming to this church, join quick if you think you're going to get sick because we're going to take care of you. But we can only do that when we know you, and we know you best through connect groups. Through connect groups. Find one. If you're not in one, let us help you find one. In Romans 8, 28, we can understand, even despite the present circumstances of my life, that God can do good if I will allow. We can understand in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that when the work is mundane, when it seems useless, that God calls us to give our best to His glory. In Isaiah 40, 29 through 31, we understand that when we're weak, He is strong, and He will give us wings to mount up as an eagle. We understand in Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus says, He hears us. Even in spite of the silence, as believers, as followers in Jesus, He hears us. In James 1.5, when wisdom is required, wisdom is given. And so, my friends, here's what I want you to do. If you have a pen, or you can get a pencil out of the pew rack, turn to Colossians. I want you to turn to Colossians 3.12, and I want you to circle it. You can date it. And I want you to remind yourself, I am the beloved of God. Because there are those days, there are those seasons when we don't feel it. And by the very promise of God, whether I feel it or not, I am beloved. You are beloved by God. So the first thing is, trust in what you know. Trust in what you know. The next thing I would tell you is trust God in His sovereignty. Trust God in His sovereignty that He's going to make all things right. If you have your Bibles again, look back to Job. If you would, go with me to Job 19. Job 19. You know, Verdell said a moment ago, she used the word, she was walking through and living through a fog. And that's where Job found himself. He found himself in a fog. He found himself in a place where he did not know what was going and how to process it. He has his friends who are taunting him, and it seems like God is not speaking to him. And then all of a sudden, the fog begins to lift. The fog begins to lift, and God gives him a word of clarity. Look with me in verse 23. He says, oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. God, in just a moment of great grace and truth, gives him the ability to make a prophecy well before the time of Christ that his Redeemer lives. He gives him a word of truth. Charles Swindoll writes these words, Enduring a painful journey can be done a lot more easily if you embrace truth as your traveling companion. Not only will it give you hope, it will clarify your perspective. Not only does truth, not only is the Word of God, not only is the Spirit of God working within us bring truth, it brings clarity to the situation I find myself in. I love the New Testament epistle, 2 Timothy's. It's one of my favorites. And a number of years ago, we had the opportunity to visit Italy, and we went into what tradition says is the prison where Paul was kept as he dictated this book, the Mamertine Prison. Maybe some of you have been there before. And as you go in, you're actually going down. You're going down into the city, into the earth. It's dark, it's dank, it's cramped. There, if I remember correctly, there was a chain, and they began to talk about that's where Paul was chained. And it was there that Paul dictated this last of his epistles to this beloved son, Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, But I know whom I have believed, And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him. What did he committed unto him? His very life and soul. I've committed unto him against that day. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 80, and he says, Timothy, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. You know, Verdell, as she was closing, she quoted from Job 40, verse 2. I've heard of you. I've heard of you, but now my eye sees you. And we see God through faith. Verdell also talked about what she had been taught, now she had to live, and was she strong enough? Was that faith strong enough? You know, we talk a lot at Park Cities about cultural Christianity. And I know there's lots of questions about that, and in just a few weeks... Our pastor's going to have a word about that, but in Connect Groups, we're going to be talking about it. We're going to wrestle with it. So I hope that you'll be a part of the next series, Rediscover. But cultural Christianity, I think simply put, has lots of definitions, but one of them is it's a religion of tradition. It's a religion of tradition. You know, in my years at Park Cities, I have, I have come across dozens of people that have told me, oh, you work at Park Cities Baptist, that's my church. And then as I begin to talk with them, I understand... I'm not even sure they know where we are on Northwest Highway. They have a tradition of attending here. Why? Because maybe they came to vacation Bible school. Maybe because their mom or their dad came, or they came to a wedding, whatever, they'll say, this is my church. Happens over and over to me. It happens probably in all the churches in our area. It may be a, tra- a, 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 a tradition or habit that we come here when we have the time, when, when things work out. We'll, we'll come into church and it's a habit. And church attendance all across America is declining. It's under one time a month now. And so when it's convenient, we may come. That, that's a habit right there. And we'll reach in the back seat, we'll grab a Bible, we may dust it off if we have one, and we'll come in. We may be here for friendships, we may be here because at one point it was good for business. I've heard our pastors say before that sometimes we turn our faith into a Christian karma. That if I do good, God is obligated to give me good. And as C.S. Lewis was talking about, there are those happy seasons, and that faith is that it's not going to hurt you, I guess, in the sense it's not going to do anything for you because it's not really a faith. It's flabby faith. But what happens in the seasons of darkness You know when Verdell's saying, on Sunday morning I was in this sanctuary, I was right over there, I was reflecting, I was content, and by that night her life was collapsing upon her. What type of faith is required for that? It's a real faith, a biblical faith. It's trusting Jesus Christ. It's trusting in His grace. It's trusting in His forgiveness. I was talking to the pastor about this, and he said this, I wrote it down. Job started out by seeking answers to his questions. And we've heard that all through here. Why? God, why? He didn't get all of his answers. But I want you to be here next week because we're going to see that Job got something much better. He got God. He got God. That's the story of faith. As I was studying, I came across a a point from a a pastor. His name is Ray Pritchard. And Ray was writing about a friend that had cancer in another state, and he had called him to check on him. And his friend said, well, the doctor says I'm in remission. May not last, but right now I'm in remission. But you know, I've been thinking through this, praying through it. And I don't know which is the greater miracle, to be healed from cancer or to be given the grace to stay faithful, even if healing is not complete. Trust God in His sovereignty that all will be made right. That's the message of Job. That's the hope that we find. That's the hope that is our Bible. That God always remembers, God always hears the cries of His children, and God will always redeem. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be till heaven, but God always redeems. This morning as I was coming in, the sun was just coming up. And I don't know if any of you were up, but it was a glorious sunrise today. The sky in the east was just beautiful colors, and I, I, I thought about the last weeks where it's just been nothing but dreariness and fog and rain, and I thought there are those times in life when God reveals himself, and it's like a beautiful sunrise. God always will redeem. He always remembers. I've closed many a memorial service with a passage from Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And in this passage, the Apostle John is recording the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he writes these words, And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. And I love this because I love the imagery of the passage. I love the fact that we see God as our Father. And I just have this picture of any earthly mom or dad. Their child comes, they have a skin knee. What do they do? They kneel down, they check them out to make sure everything's good, and then what do they do? They instinctively wipe the tears from their face. They wipe the tears from their eyes. And he gives us a picture of God wiping the tears from our eyes. But my friends, they're not just any tears. They're the last tears. They're the last tears. There's no more death. There's no more sorrows. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. God will redeem. And that's the message of Job. Our Redeemer lives. On the trip to Italy, Maria and I had the opportunity to see some magnificent cathedrals, just beautiful cathedrals. And they did exactly as they were intended. You walked in and you felt small. And as you began to look up, you began to look up to the beauty and the grandeur of the cathedral and it pointed to the very majesty of God. And they were pretty. They were beautiful. But what I will always remember is a little church in a little village called Ravenna. We had walked out to this little square and there were four churches there, the oldest being a thousand years old. Across the square. There was a newer church. It was grand. It was glorious. Catty-cornered that. There was a smaller church, almost a chapel size. And when you walked in the doors, you saw a beautiful altar. But what struck me wasn't the altar. It was just to the left of the altar. There was a plaque about like this, and it appeared to be a painting. And it was the first station of the cross. And I noticed that all around this chapel, there were these plaques, And as you followed them around, you were taken in to all the agony of the cross, the love of Jesus for us. And when you got to the other side, right at the altar, there was the last plaque. Your eyes were drawn up, and there was a crucifix hanging from the ceiling. The Apostle Paul said, Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember His story. His story is our story when we have placed our faith and trust in Him. When the days are long and when they seem dark and the silence is overwhelming, you remember Jesus. You remember His love extended to you on the cross. That's the love of our Lord. Hebrews chapter 4 as we close, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need, the time of silence the very grace of our God. John Newton was a notorious sinner. And yet in his sin, he found Christ. An incredible, glorious, redemptive story. We're going to close in just a moment with a hymn that he wrote. It's one of our favorite hymns, Amazing Grace. But there's that third stanza I want to read to you. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. Grace will lead me home. Would you pray with me? Our Father, in the quietness of this moment, I pray that you'd meet us at the very point of need that has brought us to this place. Father, I pray for those here today who do not have the hope That we've spoken about. They've never come to that place where they have trusted Jesus. I pray, God, that you would bless them at this moment with a word of clarity and help them understand their need for grace. Father, I pray for those in here today who are in the middle of that difficult, horrible season. I pray you'd bless them and that, Father, in the quiet, in the moments before us, that you'd speak to us and that we would respond. I'm going to ask you right now, if you would, in the quiet of this moment, to remain seated and just to pray. Ask God what he has for you this day, and how should you respond? In a moment, Stephen is going to come, and while we remain with our heads bowed and quiet, he's going to sing over us and take us through our time of commitment.
0: Thank mm-hmm.